This episode of The Energy Pipeline is sponsored by Caterpillar Oil & Gas. Since the 1930s, Caterpillar has manufactured engines for drilling, production, well service, and gas compression. With more than 2,100 dealer locations worldwide, Caterpillar offers customers a dedicated support team to assist with their premier power solutions. The Energy Pipeline is your lifeline to all things oil and gas, to drill down deep into the issues impacting our industry. From the frack site to the future of sustainability, hear more about industry issues, tools, and resources to streamline and modernize the future of oil and gas. Welcome to the Energy Pipeline. Welcome to the Energy Pipeline. This is Jordan Driscoll, your guest host, filling in for Jordan Yates. It is not a requirement the host be named Jordan. That's just a, uh, you know, a benefit. That's, that's something you get for free. All right, today's episode, we're going to sit down with Ian Cooper, CEO of Seek Ops at Adipak Oil & Gas Show here in Abu Dhabi. We're explore the innovative role of drone technology measuring emissions and its potential to enhance sustainability efforts across the industries. And um, I just want to say, I am very excited to hear what he has to say about drones, because this is going to be absolutely fascinating. So without further ado, Ian, would you please start by giving us a, uh, uh, telling us a bit about yourself and your role as CEO of Seacops and, and a bit of your story. Sure, thank you, Jordan. So uh, again, thank you for the opportunity to talk today about Seacops and specifically drone technology. Uh, I came into this, uh, I guess, relatively late in life. Uh, so I'd spent uh, 30 years uh, in oil and gas service industry with Schlumberger before joining um, CCOPS. Uh, one of the things that I had done as my role in, in Schlumberger was uh, early stage technology development. Uh, prior to managing the venture capital group in Schlumberger that I set up, founded and invested uh, in early stage companies like CCOPS. Mm-hmm. Um, given that we're at Adipec, uh, it's been fun to kind of go back in time and, and kind of go back to my drilling roots. Right. Uh, so I ran drilling technology. Um, R&D for completions, uh, and then went to the dark side of uh, the frack business. Um, wasn't a chemist, so I had to learn very quickly about the, uh, the subtleties of chemistry and, and some of the fantastic things that you can do with chemistry. Right. Um, always felt of myself as a kind of rounded scientist. Um, prior to that, I did a PhD in meteorology, of all things. And so I've kind of come full circle on the environmental sciences. You side. really have. And you've got all the wallpaper in the world. I mean, you've got more degrees than a thermometer. <laughs> well, you should see my office. Uh, I'm uh, very big in patenting and inventing things. So uh, I was very lucky to do 26 patents and <laughs> continuing with CCOPS to try and invent new ways to, to use drone technology. That's fantastic. And also, well done on the patents. That is not a... Uh, that is not always an easy process. A couple of them even make money for Schlumberger, I think, so. Oh, yeah. oh that little company. <laughs> okay, so in case our listeners have heard of it. <laughs> SLB, I think, now. Oh, uh, yes, yeah. yes, we have to be correct on that one. That is fantastic. So, drone tech and emissions. Uh, now, I know that we've, got, we've got some drone technology being used for emissions, and it's fascinating. Can you give us an overview of how it's being used and why it's such a game changer for sustainability? Sure, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a step back first and just Please. talk about uh, drones in general because I think there's, a, again, a lot of misunderstandings about drones. You can go into a, a local Best Buy uh, in the US and you can buy a little drone and uh, um, a lot of people use drones for wedding photography these days. Yep. And again, um, again, I've got a daughter that's gonna be married in March. It's a very lucrative business, drones yes. for wedding photography. 
Um, but we're talking more about the larger enterprise right. drones. So these are typically meter and a half, two meters. Uh, there's, there's a couple of different types. There's the long-range fixed-wing drones. They look a bit like model aircraft or right. small helicopters. And then what we use more frequently are the traditional kind of quad or multi-rotor mm -hmm. drones that uh, I think most people are more familiar with. Um, they all have slightly different purposes. The, uh, the fixed-wing tends to be for long-range. Okay. So we have used those um, offshore in the North Sea, launched from land, go to an offshore platform, fly around it and measure the emissions, come back completely manless. Um, the smaller multi-rotor drones, obviously you can get a lot closer, mm -hmm. a lot more fidelity with the measurements. Uh, interestingly, when we first started going offshore, people wanted to use the fixed wings because they wanted to, again, there's, I think there's some apprehensions about drones and their stability and right. what if it crashes into my equipment. Yeah. Uh, and we'll come back a little bit about how they're intrinsically very safe um, right. from that perspective. Uh, but we've seen a migration away actually from the fixed wing drones as the operators have got more comfortable offshore to using the multi-rotors where they'll launch them off the platform themselves. Uh, in a post-COVID world, it's a little harder to get on an offshore platform unless you're revenue generating. <laughs> so, uh, so we typically launch off a supply boat or one of the safety boats okay. nearby, and then we keep it in visual line of sight. So again, there's kind of two ways to fly drones. There's the visual line of sight we call VLOS, and then beyond visual line of sight, which was what we did with the fixed wing in the North Sea, which was about a 600-kilometer round trip. So for a while, we, we actually held the world record for the longest non-military uh, drone flight. No kidding. I, well, that's awesome. So I had no idea that there was uh, ever a, a ton of apprehension about the safety of operating drones from that, you know, you hear a lot of stories about apprehension around drones and a whole lot, lot of other applications, let's say. But uh, the operating of them near the... I guess I didn't realize there was ever that much fear around it. I mean, off offshore platforms, uh, as you can imagine, are very densely packed. Uh, yes. uh, they're putting a lot of equipment into a very tight space. Um, so, again, a fixed-wing drone um, can carry potentially quite a lot of momentum when it's flying. Yep, Should it true. fly off target, it could potentially cause quite an incident. Uh, so typically, they would fly them 500 meters around the platform, so well away right. uh, from the platform. Obviously, that all had to be coordinated for simultaneous operations, helicopters coming back and forth to the, the platform. Right. Uh, with the multi-rotor, again, given we we're a lot closer, we tend to operate those on visual line of sight. What we also use is uh, automation capabilities of these drones. So typically, we map out the waypoints where we want to go first. Mm -hmm. And again, when we come to onshore discussion, on use of onshore, we'll go into a bit more detail on that. But we map out where the drone is going to go, and then it's all push button. It's, it's hands off by the operator, and it flies the patterns that we need to map the methane emissions completely safely at a predetermined heights, predetermined offsets. And you know the timing on everything so you can avoid any supply helicopters Ex or anything like that. Exactly. It's all coordinated directly with the operator. There's typically a spotter on the platform just in case. I mean, it, it's more a safety measure than anything else. Sure. We don't overfly any equipment or personnel because uh, we're always flying downwind because we're looking for emissions coming to us. We right. are we're a direct measurement of, uh, of methane, not a, not a, a reflective or passive measurement. Um, and so with that automation capability, it's, uh, it's a much lower risk for the operator then. 
furthermore, these modern drone systems have all sorts of eyes and ears built into them. Uh, electronic anti-collision, uh, it's like a mini aircraft, essentially. It's, <laughs> it's pinging out uh, its location all the time. Um, we've actually tried, you know, we have a, a little R&D center in Austin um, mm -hmm. where we, uh, we uh, prove up our technology. We've tried flying it into walls and it will, it will fly very fast and, and stop. You cannot get these things to commit suicide. Okay. I mean, I, that's better than my car, which I think actively tries <laughs> to back me into things. Uh, uh, only if it's using Google Maps. So. <laughs> I mean, 10 years ago would have been Apple Maps, but yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, as far as speaking of the sensors, right, we're getting to that. Seacops drones, you're equipped with some of the most cutting edge uh, sensors around. So tell me about some of these sensors and some of the super precise emissions measurements you can do with them. Yeah. So again, our sensor is drone agnostic, so we can fly on any any enterprise-grade drone. That was a, a really strategic business decision. That because is. Drones are such a rapidly advancing uh, platform. Um, I think at, at some point in the near future, they will be commoditized, but we made that very conscious decision that we wanted everything to be in one simple unit. So power, telemetry, GPS, the sensor itself, uh, a LiDAR for verticality. So wherever it is, it knows exactly where it is because mm -hmm. what we're measuring is the concentration of methane and we're measuring it directly. Uh, so we have uh, a laser and a detector and two mirrors in the sensor that's put just ahead of the prop wash so that we get a pristine sample that's not affected by the propellers. Nice. Um, patented. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and that, uh, that laser bounces back and forth between those mirrors, so it doesn't come out of the sensor at all and reflect. It's always self-contained. So it, it's what's called an open cavity, tunable diode, absorption spectrometer. So again, a, a very long-winded way of saying we get a very long path length so we can tune to part per billion sensitivity of methane, which is really important when you're operating in oil and gas or biogas around farms or landfill. And again, we'll come on to how these applications differ. Uh, but the methane tends to be elevated there. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking for leaks or enhancements above background, you need that part per billion sensitivity. So that, that, that's the sensor itself, self-contained, battery life flies for about eight hours, much longer than any drone can stay in the air. Right. Typical drone systems that we use have about 45 minutes to an hour flight time. Again, when we set up a drone to fly on a, a, an oil and gas well pad, for example, that has tanks and separators and wellheads, individual equipment groups, and our role is to try and identify the leaks from each of those equipment groups with the sensor. We, we can't get to the detail of it. it's this valve at this point here. Because we're flying quite fast, we want it to be relatively unobtrusive to the operator. Right. As I said, we don't overfly any equipment or personnel. Uh, we always try and fly downwind or around the equipment. Um, we take a wind measurement on the drone, and we also have an offset anemometer uh, that's recording the wind. So at every point we're recording, we're recording at, at 10 times a second. As we fly this kind of interlaced mesh, kind of like the old tube um, televisions, up and down and back and forth to get a really dense mesh around the equipment. Um, each point is a concentration of methane and the wind vector. And that's important because that allows our, our wonderful physicists back in the, uh, in the office, uh, when the data's been uploaded to the cloud, 
to determine the location and most importantly, the leak rate, the quantification. And everything is about quantification because that enables you then to prioritize your leaks and which yes. ones you fix first. Oh, that's that's outstanding. So, like, like I said, I'm very excited about where this technology is going. And so, that's brilliant. If I may ask, I don't even know if I'm allowed to know this information, but I'm going to throw it out there. You can tell me or not. How much does the sensor package weigh? If it's modular and can be put on pretty much any industrial-grade drone. So, it's about 600 grams. Okay. So, super light. So, again, yes. the mirrors, the heaviest part, typically the batteries that go into the unit. Certainly. Uh, we use carbon fiber. Uh, I come from an oil field technology development background. When I came into CCOPS, the technology wasn't quite commercial. What I brought to the company was that rigor in product development. So again, I wanted to make sure this thing is really robust for the oil field. People in the oil field treat things really badly. <laughs> they drag things through mud, they drop them, they throw the Pelican cases on aircraft and uh, it's got to stand all that shock and vibration. You know, 100%. Shake and bake, we call it. Yes. <laughs> um, so just as we'd shake and bake a downhole drilling tool, we do the same with our sensor as well to make sure it's fit for purpose for the oil field. So we put it in an oven, we make sure it can fly in the heat of the Saudi desert, um, and then we freeze it down to minus 20 to make sure we can fly either upstate New York for biodigesters or Canadian oil and gas operations. So. Again, that, that reliability of the sensor is important. And, and furthermore, we went for ISO 9001 certification as well. For us, so, that was really important to demonstrate to our customers that we have a workflow and equipment that they can trust. Right, right. So you mean to tell me 600 grams, heat, cold, being tossed around by just any old anybody for any reason whatsoever. And it's got, you said, an eight-hour battery life? But and typically works right out of the box. First thing we do typically is safety case with the operator, walk them through the operations, show them how the sensor's gonna work, where we're gonna fly. And then first time we fly, we actually put an orthomosaic camera on a drone, a slightly smaller drone, a little more agile. Right. And right. that does a visual map of the facility. So we have, we don't rely on Google Earth. We have a high resolution map of all the equipment the on location so that when we do those methane measurements and we're trying to locate where that leak is we can put it in the context of those operations and the equipment at that time then we fly the methane drone first time out we fly to set the waypoints so that when we come back if we found leaks and they repair them when we come back it's push button so a typical well pad will take about an hour to fly mm -hmm. that first time because we're setting up the waypoints kind of just seeing where the equipment is again working closely with the operator making Getting sure he's patterns and exactly making sure he's got you know no fly zone so no drone is intrinsically safe so we can't go right near the wellhead because sure. of explosion risk so we map out those regions when we go back once they've found a leak and fixed it it takes about seven minutes because we put the drone down, it knows where it's flying, we push the button, it's a one-person operation, and it just maps out. You've got the safety guy there in case something should happen, yes. but otherwise it's seven minutes of this thing running around, yeah. checking the emissions, back to wherever it's docked yeah. or based, Exactly. And that's that. So we can do 20 well pads a day like that, so you start to get a really good indication of what's my worst performing asset, what's my best performing asset. Yes. And then you scale that to what we've done onshore, offshore with customers. So we've done quite a bit of work with Shell and BP 
And obviously they work in multiple countries. They want to know which is my worst, which is my best performing asset, because that's what I'm going to address first. As we've heard here this week at Adipec, it's, it's all about minimize emissions as quickly as possible. Right. With quantification data that tells you what that asset leak rate is for each of their equipment, they can sum that up and say, okay, offshore Nigeria, that's where I'm going to put my attention first. And again, so that's actionable information that's come from this little sensor that's no bigger than this. <laughs> that is fantastic. So out of the box, I mean, perfect circumstances, nothing crazy happens, best case scenario. Out of the box, you've got a drone sitting here, you've got your box with the sensor from, from CCOPS. How long does it take you to get that drone in the air making its first flight? Uh, about 15 minutes. I mean, typically... I can't set my phone up in 15 minutes. <laughs> Again, yeah, we've, we've typically been working uh, with the operator ahead of time. We've done what we call, again, we used to call it in the drilling world, drill the well on paper. Right. We, f we fly the operation on paper beforehand, so we see exactly where we're going to fly. We tell the operator it's here. We, uh, when we get on location, if the wind is not quite where we're expecting, and typically we know the prevailing winds, but as you can imagine, with all of that equipment around, wind is swirling. Certainly. Again, it takes me all the way back to my meteorological background because right. you've got these complex flows. So you're trying to find where a leak is coming from with all these flows. The real benefit a drone gives you is that three-dimensionality. So again, I think we'll come on to the kind of the other sensor formats, but a drone gives you that ability to essentially encompass the whole plume from a specific leak. That three-dimensionality is really important because of that complexity of the boundary layer flows. If you were just in one location, and you can imagine you had a fixed sensor here, and the wind was blowing that way, the sensor wouldn't see the leak. 100%, yeah. I mean, this is... I mean, it would have been 30 years ago, completely impot. This would have been fantasy. It would have been nonsense if somebody had tried to suggest this. Exactly. The cost, the sophistication of the drones have really enabled this. What, what, what's interesting for us, you know, whilst we have our own pilots, our method of scaling, and so we're commercially operational on all six major continents now, which for a startup is quite a headache <laughs> logistically, but it's, you know, it's what we needed to do because our operators are global operators. Uh, so we really needed to partner with drone service providers. This has led to a little industry of drone companies that do nothing but fly sensors, fly packages. So we bring them to Austin, we train them for a couple of days in the use of the sensor. These are typically experienced pilots already that have had, again, just like commercial pilots, they've got hundreds of hours, Right. Yeah. Ex except it's flying a drone, you know, more like a video game. And so we bring them to Austin, train them up in the optimized flight patterns for our sensor, and then we ship them the sensor, whether it's in Argentina or Ecuador. And so we have about 15 drone companies around the world that we've trained up, and they use that sensor then. They upload our data to the cloud, and then we process that data in Austin. For a startup, that is astonishing efficiency. Like, I'm, I'm, very, uh, I'm very impressed with your company. So last year, we actually won Startup of the Year Award here at Adipec last year. It was a very big deal for us. Oh, see, us. I'm, I'm late to the game. Somebody <laughs> else has already recognized that, clearly. So <laughs> no, well learned, it sounds like. It was a big deal for us. Uh, Adipec came out with a big film crew and, and kind of shot some really good footage that you know, we use in marketing information now. Um, but I think it, 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 it was driven by the fact that we globalized uh, the solution. And again, methane emissions is a global problem. It needs a global solution. Sure does. That is, that's wonderful. Um, so, speaking of emissions, 
uh, and I think we already have kind of touched on this, but if you want to go a little bit deeper, uh, how? well, actually, I'm just going to flag this and cut this part out because you already well hit this question. So we're good there. Um, so what other, now do you guys do any kind of in-house drones yourselves uh, as far as, or is it just the sensor base itself and modularity with all the... Yeah, our, our, I guess our secret source is in the processing of the data. Okay. Um, the, the sensor itself, uh, we've, again, built some intellectual property around that, particularly how we use it robustly in the oil field. I think one thing to highlight is that you know, we're one part of the whole evolution of methane emissions. Um, I think, if, again, if you walk around Adipec, you'll see there are sat satellite providers, mm -hmm. there are continuous monitors. Uh, Methane emissions is a very complex problem. I think there's been a lot of misinformation out there. I call them the three M's, myths, misinformation, misunderstanding. Yes. That have been propagated primarily by the technology providers themselves, <laughs> uh, wanting to be a single solution to everybody for everything. Uh, right. Given the spatial and temporal scale of emissions, um, you know, we focus on both our capabilities and our limitations. Uh, our biggest limitation is, we're a snapshot in time. Right. So satellites are great for large aerial coverage, uh, particularly with a constellation of satellites. So there's a company called GHGSat out of uh, Canada. Um, great company. Um, I used to sit on the board of the company, which is ultimately how I got into methane emissions. Uh, again, a, a longer story, probably worth over a beer. Oh, uh, deal. And, uh, and they, uh, they have a constellation of satellites that uh, essentially can cover the globe. But a much, they're 520 kilometers away from the source. <laughs> right, you're not catching a leak with those. So they're not getting the range of leaks. So right. our, our sensor is sensitive down to two hundredths of a kilogram an hour. A satellite is about 200 kilograms an hour, their minimum detection level. So we see almost every leak, but they're a good screening tool. Right. Then you've got manned aircraft that uh, obviously can fly a large area of land as well slightly lower nearer the source right um, typically these are reflectivity measurements so they have issues they typically don't work offshore because of the reflection of the water uh, again another strength that we have is that we can operate day or night onshore offshore because we're a direct measurement right um, and the manned aircraft of course big issue they're manned um, people, equipment, insurance, fuel, all the thing. I mean, it's, it is... And they have their own scope one emissions. Right. Uh, which, uh, to me, is a little bit of anachronism that you're trying to... Suck. If you don't see an emissions, then you're surely a methane contributor. <laughs> um, and then you've got continuous monitors, whether there's cameras or fixed sensors that are essentially like smoke alarms right. to me. I mean, I think they'll always have trouble trying to quantify Again, just because of the complexity of understanding the wind fields around oil and gas equipment. But, um, you know, I have smoke detectors at home. I don't ask them how big my fire is. <laughs> right. But they all work in unison as part of this um, overall package. And they're all necessary. And I think this is where the industry has been looking for a silver bullet where there is none. Uh, could not agree more with that statement. And also, I am 100% going to steal and use your fire alarm uh, <laughs> metaphor. As I often say, my favorite metaphor is the overextended one, so I'm going to have a bit of that. I'll let you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, all right. So if you have, uh, you know, we've done one thing with the tech talk there. Do you have any real-world examples that are just sort of off the cuff 
that you want to talk about? So again, we have, uh, we're not just in upstream oil and gas. Uh, again, one of the things that are great about the relationship we have with Caterpillar, and I guess I didn't say about how I relate to Caterpillar. So when I was, at, so we'll go back and I'll come back to answer that. Um, so when I was a venture capitalist at Schlumberger, uh, I spent a lot of time looking at automation and robotics technologies. Um, we looked at one particular technology, which was uh, essentially like an Iron Man suit. Uh, Caterpillar was already an investor, and uh, we got bought into that as an investment as well. Uh, I sat on the board with Caterpillar there, really enjoyed their outlook on how they were looking at the energy transition and seeing how evolution from diesel to natural gas to all electric. Um, so we started looking at other investments together. So when it comes to me leaving Schlumberger and joining CCOPS, I thought when I'm looking at investors, who else would I reach out to that's got that kind of vision and you know, also has emissions, Caterpillar. So I reached out to Caterpillar, one of the best investment experiences I could have. Great due diligence, very good indication on how they time their investment. And in fact, they just re-upped their investment uh, two weeks ago. So again, really happy relationship. Well, congratulations, and that's awesome. Um, so, in terms of the, the previous question, which was... Uh, yes, yes. So, the, uh, do you have an example, sort of, yes. of real-world... Uh... Yeah, so, uh, so again, we're not just in the oil and gas space. Right. Uh, we're in... Uh, I mean, emissions is everywhere, so, so we're in kind of leaves you a wide-open market. So, there, I mean, there's, there's, there, there are many markets. Uh, we decided to focus on three. Upstream and midstream oil and gas. Uh, biogas, so renewable natural gas, and landfill. And landfill is uh, one of the biggest contributors. Uh, in terms of emissions. So again, if I look at a typical... You don't hear that one that often, off, do you? Exactly. Oil and gas gets the bad press. Sure, sure do. Um, and the issue is, I think oil and gas can fix theirs relatively easy, easily. Landfill has a much tougher problem, but I like the way they're going about it. Okay. So again, if you look at a company like Waste Management, what they're doing is they're harnessing the gas that they might have previously been flaring mm -hmm. by putting gas collection systems and then upgrading that gas and putting it in the pipeline. And, and then either getting carbon credits or monetizing the gas itself. Okay. So again, in that market, uh, what we've done is we've developed a system where, again, we leverage the terrain following capabilities of these drones, because as you can imagine, a landfill site, um, ever-changing topography. Yes, no rhyme or reason, there's no- Dump trucks coming uh, night and day, earth getting dug up, and that leads to very high emissions. Um, so there's typically two areas on a landfill site. There's the active burial region, which mm -hmm. is where the earth's turning, and then the waste in place, where they've typically buried it, capped it, and then they drill wells to essentially tap the gas. Okay. What we've done is we fly a high-density methane survey over the surface of that landfill site. So again, we've mapped out exactly where those methane hotspots are. And again, those gas wells they put in are not very deep. So. Right the distribution of gas in the subsurface is pretty representative, we think, of what we see at the surface. So we've developed a technique, patented, uh, where we, uh, we tell them where those hotspots are and then say, if you want to optimize your gas up collection, this is where you drill. So it saves them the money of having to mow the grass first, right. drill test wells to find out what the methane concentration is in the subsurface, and then put those wells in space. So again, huge cost saving for Oh them. yeah, you've just taken out a previously gargantuan chunk of the discovery process. And again, this was a technique that was developed by our in-house pilots. They just came across this idea and said, wow, we see this map, 
when we processed the data, they saw these various hotspots. And again, I used my drilling background from the oil and gas business to say, well, that's probably a 200 feet representative of the subsurface. Let's work with the operator, the customer in this case, and say, if we told you to drill here, what would that do to your gas collection system? And so they drilled it, and they love this process now. Say the, say the magic P word again. <laughs> they love that process, and it leads to profits for us. There you go. Patented. Yes. <laughs> um, and then uh, the other area we work on is biogas. So these are dairy farms, livestock farms, where, again, they're also looking to essentially monetize the waste. waste. Uh, poop to power, I yeah. call it. Um, really unpleasant. One of the first jobs I went on, again, I had my coveralls. Uh, when I came home from that, my wife made me hang my coveralls in the garage for about two weeks. The smell was so bad. Um, but everything leaks on a biogas process. You're essentially taking the poop from the cows, you put it into a process, you put it into a, what's called an anaerobic digester. Okay. Um, that's where methanogenesis, the methane, is produced. That's taken out of the digester into an upgrading unit, very similar to what's put on a landfill site. Okay. That strips out CO2, H2S, um, and then that can be upgraded, sold, traded. Um, and so we fly each of those aspects and tell them where their leaks are. Um, the first time we flew this, the leaks were about eight times higher than the customer was thinking. And for them, because of the value of the gas is typically in the carbon credits, it's worth you know, 10 to 50 times the actual spot price of the gas. So asset integrity, keeping gas in pipe is really important to them. And not that it's not important for the oil and gas business, Certainly. for them, they essentially didn't want us to report in kilograms an hour, they wanted us to report in dollars per hour <laughs> and what they were losing. And of course, our surveys pay for themselves many times over Certainly. with that. Um, and so, for example, for one company, I think if we looked at eight biodigesters, um, before going on location, then after we'd told them where their leaks were, they'd repaired them again. They, we literally had to stop them flying, uh, following us up with a wrench underneath the drone. <laughs> it's that important to them. We wanted to get an assessment of their site first. Um, we, uh, we, we got a nearly 90% reduction in the emissions before and after, which is, uh, in, again, in the oil and gas world, offshore, um, because they don't necessarily fix everything all at once, we see about a 50% reduction between right. uh, visits. And for us as a business now, it so is all about those. one visit you guys got one flight over, you identified all the source problems, they went and made the corrections. Yep. Second flight, you're down 90%. Yes. That is astonishing. Which is real money for them. Because well, yes. Whereas, again, in the oil and gas business, again, it's much harder, particularly offshore, to get a repair crew out. It takes a little bit longer. So there, typically, we've seen about a 50% reduction. Still significant. Uh, statistically, yes, very yeah. much. Um, so, we're, again, we're continuing to see that now. And again, what we're seeing as we work with operators, because they're still learning how to use this technology. Right. Typically, the report that we give them is, you know, we mark up, these are the leaks we've found, this is where they are. They will then go and tell us, these are the repairs we've made. So, again, when we go back, we know if we see that there's no leak, we can put attention somewhere else then. Right. Which right. means, again, a faster operation for them, less obtrusive. That is fantastic. Well, to close it out, everything has its challenges. What are the main hurdles when it comes to using drones for mission measurements? And 
how do you think the industry is working to overcome that? So there's, uh, I say there's a number of different problems. One is uh, the workhorse drone is the DJI M300. Uh, there's the, if, I think DJI have a booth here at Adipec. You can see the latest and greatest drones there. Um, it's a Chinese drone. <laughs> so we have certain uh, customers that insist on non-Chinese drones. Um, real drawback is there's been no US equivalent yet. Okay. Really surprising to me as a kind of technologist that that hasn't happened yet. It, it, it's coming. Um, I mean, maybe a uh, subsidiary of CCOPs, I don't know. <laughs> We're focused, sorry. <laughs> um, and then um, I think particularly in this region of the world, uh, there's definitely been some apprehension about drones, drone security. Understandably. We're working with a number of the major oil and gas companies here, but it, it's slow progress, a lot of HSE vetting. The other issue that we have is data residency as well, data can't leave the country, whereas we typically operate in the cloud. Right. So we have to have an on-prem solution. So again, it's not really an issue with the drone per se, but that data has to stay on location, um, which means a, a little more processing headache for us. I think the other thing that you know, we would like to see a little bit faster is what we call drone in a box. Because if you can imagine a large landfill site, I'd rather not send two pilots out, Right. just leave it on location, and whenever the operator wants to send it up, uh, they can fly it daily. In fact, uh, you know, one of the landfill operators essentially said they, they'd like to fly it two or three times a day. Uh, oh, wow. Because we see these diurnal effects. When the sun's been baking the landfill, yes. emissions are typically higher in the afternoon. And again, they want to know what that, that range is. When's their worst time, when's their best time. Exactly. Yep. And again, it's all about knowledge. Uh, and information they've never had at their hands before. So again, I think you know, we've seen a couple of drone-in-a-box providers here. Tech isn't quite there yet, but again, I think I would like to see that accelerate so that we can, again, have a, a drone-agnostic system that we could deploy globally and leave it on location. And right now, we're still shipping sensors around the world right. to these third-party drone companies. Ultimately, I'd like to leave it with an operator on location so that whenever they need it, they fire up the drone and it just does its little survey, comes back, tells us to process the data, and that's how we make our money. That, I mean, I would assume we are, as fast as the technology in this particular space has moved, I can't imagine we're more than a handful of years out from being there. It, it, it's coming, and I think the other area is the long range beyond visual line of sight. I think yes. we've been blessed that companies like Walmart and Amazon with last mile delivery have been right. somewhat driving beyond visual line of sight. But in the US, if you look at the register of those that have got beyond visual line of sight waivers outside of the military, it, it's typically academia at this point. And so there's not a lot of commercial activity, again, other than those two commercial right, giants. Right. Um, again, so ideally, we'd like to piggyback off that. But if you could imagine you know, today a, um, a pipeline, long section of pipeline is done typically with a manned aircraft. Nobody wants to use manned aircraft because risk, flight, personnel. Expense. Expense. Um, so again, a beyond visual line of sight drone would be an obvious solution for that. Again, it's not trivial. Right, right. But it, it's coming. It's coming. And again, you know, as a 30 plus year technologist, I've been pleasantly surprised by both the rate of adoption of this new technology. And again, I think in the oil and gas business, we've done something here that's unprecedented because if you look at traditional oil and gas technologies from concept to commercial acceptance, and again, this is something that Shell uh, you know, will wax lyrical about, is <laughs> takes 10 plus years, yeah. which is again, very annoying for a service company trying to commercialize a technology. 
what we've done in this emission space, and again, not just us, the satellites, the, uh, the fixed sensor companies, we've asked the operators to accept new technologies that didn't exist five years ago and accept them commercially, and it, it makes them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, but we've seen that adoption. Again, we are doing regular repeat work with some of the world's biggest oil and gas companies now, which I think would have been unheard of 10 years ago. Truly would have. Uh, first off, well done, congratulations. I think what you guys have there is going to be, uh, where it's going is going to be just as exciting as where it's been in the past couple of years. So thank you so much for taking time to come and talk with me today. Uh, this is Jordan Driscoll. This is Ian Cooper signing off on the Energy Pipeline. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jordan. It's great. Come back next week for another episode of the Energy Pipeline, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.